It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of the New European, write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, please join us. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. People like me, Steve Anglesey, how are you? The New European has got an excellent new website. Why not check it out at theneweuropean.co.uk? And then enjoy more from the New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. In a moment, I'll be joined by the broadcaster and former BBC Europe editor, Mark Mardell, whose Trading Blows documentary explores the effects Brexit has had on British explorers. And then we will put more putrid politicians and pompous pundits into the Hall of Shame. But first, he's back. Dominic Raab is back. He's back, blinking haplessly in the spotlight, looking for all the world as pale and confused as Professor Geoffrey Fairbrother did in Heidi High when he uncovered Ted Bovis's crooked bingo game or found out that Gladys Pugh was in love with him or unearthed the fact that Peggy the Cleaner was hiding 20,000 Afghan refugees in her empty showers. I think that, that happened. Dominic Raab, you'll remember, was the man who, when he was Brexit secretary, said, I haven't quite understood the full extent of this, but if you look at the UK and look at how we trade in goods, we are particularly reliant on the Dover-Calais crossing. And now it turns out he hadn't quite understood either the full extent of how, if you look at the UK and look at Afghanistan, we were particularly reliant on the Americans keeping out the Taliban. And he hadn't quite understood either the full extent of how bad it looks when you're the foreign secretary and you book your holidays in Cyprus. For the very day, the Americans withdraw from Afghanistan because what's the worst that can happen, right? And it turns out, too, that the Dover and Calais thing, it's not even the most stupid thing Dominic Raab's ever said, because now he has said, I want to be clear to all those service people who lost their lives that it was not in vain. Dom, they're not listening, mate. He also said, Britain is a big-hearted nation that provides a safe haven to those fleeing persecution. Well, we are big-hearted, but in 2019, there were approximately five asylum applications for every 10,000 residents in the UK. And compare that to the EU average, which is 14 asylum applications for 10,000 of the population. That puts us 17th in the EU in terms of asylum applications ahead of population. And even now... Pretty Patel is saying, we can't do this alone, even though there's no evidence of us doing 
it alone and there's no evidence of anybody asking us to do it alone and even now we're making afghans who work for britain fill out forms before we put them on planes to safety and even now we're not helping afghan interpreters who we didn't directly employ and we're not even taking phone calls to sort out helping them so how are we going to sort out asylum for afghanis when the lunatics have taken over asylum what do you think about britain's part in afghanistan we asked listeners of this podcast what are the lessons Britain should learn from this fiasco? Sue Jones says we should learn that Johnson and his cabal are not fit for office. Alan Carton said there are hundreds of lessons on culture, strategy, law, ethics, sociology, religion, governance, international relations, geography, humanities, philosophy, economics. The question should be, what do we learn? Sweet bugger all. Patrick McDermott says we should learn that the British Empire is no more. Get over it. And Max Beacon says we should learn, where was global Britain on the streets of Kabul? The Americans took a decision without reference to their major partner in Afghanistan. We simply don't matter anymore. Johan Hardy says, when more than a a million people say don't do this, then don't do it. That's a lesson to learn. And David Powell says, we should learn not to follow America like sheep into every flag-waving military overseas campaign. Do what Harold Wilson did with Vietnam and say, no, Mr. President. And Chris Gamble says we should learn that lots of supply companies made a massive amount of profit out of this, and many are complicit in the institutional corruption that led to defeat. Now we return to domestic matters, and I'm joined by a journalist and broadcaster who will be familiar to you from Newsnight, from The World at One, from The World This Weekend, many more. He was the BBC's first Europe editor. He wrote and hosted the Brexit A Love Story podcast. And most recently, he's behind Trading Blows, a documentary about how British exporters are dealing with Brexit. He's also the author of several excellent pieces for the New European. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Mardell. Thank you very much for having me. That's very nice to have you. Um, we'll talk about trading blows um, in a minute, which is what you've written about in, in uh, this week's edition of the New European. In the intro there, I just mentioned you were the BBC's Europe editor for, from uh, 2005, 2009. Brexit, what we call Brexit, was just a speck on the horizon then, I, I'm guessing, and, and the role of a BBC editor, Europe editor was less Brexit dominated than it probably has been over the last few years. Who were yeah, the people? Right. I'm very glad in a way that it was so because yes. it was a glorious time. I really enjoyed it and got to travel a lot around Europe and tell the story from, which is what I strongly believe in, in, in all jobs, in all reporting jobs, you need to see things on the ground. So I got to do that. And, but I mean, I think at the, at the same time, it was when UKIP was growing. I mean, I never, never could have conceded, conceived that they would have the success they did. But I felt... And I think the BBC felt at that time, and maybe Mayor Culper, I have to say, that they were falling beneath the cracks, you know, between the cracks. of They weren't getting coverage at Westminster, obviously, because they didn't have MPs. They were regarded as outliers and absurd in, within the European Parliament and didn't get tr- covered by the European media. So I must admit, I was one of those who said, well, maybe their voice should be heard. Mm, yes. Mm. I mean, you, you revisited all of this in Brexit, a love story, which were, which was really great. What were the... What were the sort of the turning points, you think, or, or one or two turning points that, that just put us on a, you know, a, a, path, of, a path of no return, really, to, to, to where we are now? I think there were the long-term factors, you know, which you could take back to 
Britain being an island and the whole way it sees itself and de Gaulle's mm. idea that um, de Gaulle was obsessed by the Churchill quote that when it comes and which Churchill said he never said but if it's a choice between the open sea and Europe Britain will always choose the open sea so those big factors I think the way the tabloid press covered it yes for years just making out you anything from Europe was ridiculous you know Boris Johnson plays played a part in that of course and I think the the fact that it was a badge of courage within the Tory party to be Eurosceptic, not about leaving the European Union, never for a long time about European uh, leaving the European Union, but that it was seen as rallying around Maggie, Maggie, Maggie's flag after her defenestration. I think that was a big part of it. But also what happened over immigration under Blair sort of set the, set the blaze going and Cameron's idiot decision to go for a referendum, which I know a lot of people say that if he hadn't done it, it'd have lost his leadership. I don't think that's true. I think he could have ignored the pressure from the ginger groups like UKIP. But I mean, I think Cameron bears a huge, huge responsibility for it tumbling down at the end. Completely. Um, before we look at trading blows, I mean, another impossible task of distilling something amazingly complex into a few words. But, you know, recently we've had John T. Bloom here. We've had Gavin Esler here a few times. We always talk about the, the Alma Mater, the BBC. Is, is the BBC's independence under more threat than usual, do you think? Yeah, big question. Yes, I think it's I think it's continually under threat. I think it's yes. been under threat ever since the general strike, you know. I mean, it goes back a long way. And you think of the, the under the Blair government, the business about the scientist killing himself and the inquiry into that and the way we got hammered and lost a director general over that, the Savile inquiry, not in the same way political, but we got hammered for covering stuff, hammered for not covering stuff. I say we still, I still think in many ways yeah. of we. So I think they're always under pressure from the government. I think it's pretty obvious this government wants loyalty. And I think the BBC is to a certain degree, well, very big degree aware of the licence fee decision is a huge one. It's aware that the media landscape is changing. It's aware that it's under threat. And I think with Brexit in particular, I mean, you know, they did commission this documentary and I, I came to them with it and they could have said, no, we're not interested. But I think with Brexit in particular, there's a dual feeling. People are bored with it, bored with the subject. We went on and on about it for years and years and years and we need something new. And obviously with COVID, we got that in terms of journalism. But there's also a feeling that why get out of your way? And maybe this is a theme of the documentary as well. Why get out of your way to offend the government? So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's eternal vigilance. I think um, I was talking to a friend who's also left the BBC and we were saying we managed to say quite a lot that we wanted to say and we thought was right to say and we thought was objective journalism. But it's always in the BBC a bit like a resistance. There are resistance groups who want, want good journalism, want good values. And there are the suits who want other things which aren't necessarily same as good journalism and it's it's always a dialectic it's always a battle it's yes saying dialectic probably these days yes i mean they as, as you say they have they have let you make make uh, make trading blows which uh, which has led to this great piece uh, in the new european you, you spoke to representatives of three different industries you found very different things did did anyone say this has been good for my business and did anyone say this has destroyed my business no, I think that was the interesting thing. You're absolutely right to pick on that. Even the companies that were complaining the most weren't saying, weren't putting a figure on it. They couldn't put a figure on how much it had harmed them. 
it had harmed them, it had caused them trouble, I'd say, you know, irritation, annoyance, extra money, extra staff. Mm. Um, and those that didn't mind it so much that were getting through it, none of them said it was brilliant. Few people or most people looked at trade deals as a possible plus. But what I wanted to do just to go back, I mean, was to take three industries, very different. Whiskey, because it's the biggest food and drink export. Aerospace, because it's one of the, it's what the government describes as a jewel in the export crown. And also because Airbus were big complainers about the idea of Brexit in the first place. And lawnmowers, which was a bit more left field, not left wing, left field, because um, I started off actually, it wasn't going to be lawnmowers, first of all, it was going to be um, vacuum cleaners. Ah, okay. Because, because obviously there's the Dyson reason there, he wouldn't play ball with us. The only existing lawn, um, vacuum cleaner company didn't want to play ball with us. But the reason was because of that. There was a Daily Mail article headed 12 ways to make Brexit a success when it happens. And one of the reasons was to buy more powerful sort of vacuum cleaners that were banned by the European Union. And I thought, well, the same would apply to light bulbs. Not very interesting audio-wise, but also to lawnmowers, which are quite interesting audio-wise. And there's one, maybe two companies in the UK that export. And we went to one of them. So those were the three industries. And have they, have, has the lawnmower man been able to let it rip then in, in a way that the, the Daily Mail imagine? That that, uh, that he might have been able to. Well, absolutely not. Partly that's the government's decision because the government has put lock, stock, and barrel European law into British law. So even if he wanted to, even if he wanted to make a more powerful lawnmower, he couldn't sell it in this country because we've adopted European law. So I think I haven't heard many voices raised, but you'd have thought ardent Brexiteers would say we're just not getting the benefits we thought we would. But did he want those benefits? No, this guy absolutely didn't because, and I remember way back when REACH, the chemicals directive came in, I was looking at paint and rather, when I was Europe editor, and rather naively, I thought I'd get paint companies going, great, this is terrible. We can't make the paint we want. We've got to change it. And they're saying, no, it's great because we can sell to, but it wouldn't have been Romania then, but we can sell all over the European Union and Britain. And, and we only have one standard rather than loads of different standards. And he was exactly the same. We want safe machines. We want good standards. A lot of their models are now electric, so we don't want these uh, guzzlers. And we want, we want the same standard all over the world. Yeah. So you know, he absolutely didn't want to take advantage. I mean, the Daily Mail thing was a complete myth, as you'll be shocked to learn anything in the Daily Mail is a myth. But, I mean, it was just made up. While I while I reel from that news, I mean that's this is absolutely the point, isn't it? That I guess the government could go back on standards later on, but but what would be the incentive for him? Because he, you know, he'd then have a tiny market to sell uh, one lawnmower in, and and, and uh, a much bigger market to, to sell another lawnmower in. Um, Enders, you went to, you mentioned Enders, the the, the aircraft manufacturer. Um, they were when when uh, sorry Enders uh, Airbus when yeah. when when, uh, when Tom Enders was the CEO of of Airbus, um, he was you know he he was muttering darkly about how Brexit was a terrible threat. Airbus might not always be here. We might not uh, be buying wings from British manufacturers, but but Airbus are now much more emollient, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, the change is quite dramatic. I mean, you could say. Well, that's because what Enders was warning about was a hard Brexit. I mean, you mm. could argue we have a hard Brexit, but certainly there is a deal, obviously. And they're worried about have not having a deal at all. 
and uh, wings piling up at the ports and not being able to export them. That hasn't happened. So you could just say they've, as one of our guests in the documentary said, they've dodged a bullet. But I think it's much more than that. I think that they did try to use their political clout to avoid something. That's gone and they're a business. And, and it's one of the things that brought home to me was that, well, there's several facets to this. I think, first of all, particularly big companies don't want to be don't want to moan. I mean, as as journalists and as people who are politicians want to look for problems, want to exploit them because they're interesting and the problems are where cracks lie and where, where you see what the fault lines and things. Business are just interested in selling more stuff and they don't want to sort of say, well, we're having real problems, it's really difficult. They don't want to sort of put a negative spin on what's going on. And I think certainly with Airbus and possibly with the other company, uh, another company we visited, Chivers Brothers, uh, the big drinks company, they, they don't see any mileage in moaning at the government. And I think particularly with Airbus, and you know, I can't prove this, but Airbus needs the government as much as government needs, Britain needs Airbus. Their new facility at Filton in near Bristol, uh, which is a test centre, 20 million pounds, not a huge amount of money in, in government terms, but came from the taxpayer. Right. Would somebody in government say, if they were moaning continually about Brexit, would somebody say, well, we really shouldn't be rewarding them for saying those things. And the, the, the uh, UK chairman, um, John Harrison, was telling me that there are other, lots of other things coming up. There's a new contract for UK customs helicopters. There's the space industry is developing, defence satellites are developing. There's lots of government contracts they want. So I think it's not in their interest to say Brexit was a disaster. And also, I mean, which we'll come on to, they're a big company, they can cope. It doesn't mean they like it, doesn't mean they love it, doesn't mean mm. they see a huge advantage in it, but they can cope. Now, there are smaller uh, companies then who are, are coping less well or have had to put even more uh, infrastructure in to, to, to deal with that. What, what did you find out from them? Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting contrast because John Harrison, who I was just talking about, the UK chairman, when he was, he's also their head corporate lawyer, and he was put in charge of their Brexit steering committee a few years ago. And a few years ago, they put 200 people from 10 different departments on solving the problems that they thought Brexit would produce. So while they were... Uh, moaning about it, warning about it politically, they were preparing for it as well. Hmm. So they could do that. And, you know, they've had teething troubles. They've had problems. They've had problems getting engineers over from Germany to look at problems with British wings. They've had problems with the visas and how long they can stay and all that. So they're not denying they've had problems, but they can cope with them because they threw, I mean, so they could put 200 people onto it. Now the lawnmower company only employs, I think, uh, 45 people, but that's soon going to be 46, or maybe by now is 46, because they're going to have to employ an extra member of staff to cope with the whole paperwork. And the horror stories that he came up with, the boss of the company, I mean, I say horror stories, I mean, he was pretty horrified, and he feels it's damaging to his business, but for a small company, they're only sending one or two lawnmowers to a customer at one time. These are expensive beasts, they cost Yes, luxuries, aren't they? Luxury lawnmowers. Yeah. yeah, fanatics. He was very funny about saying uh, people who buy lawnmowers are proud to be fanatics. You, they compare photos of how stripy their lawns are. And, you know, they, 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 their whole dedication goes in. That's their hobby is mowing their lawn. Not hobby. I'm particularly 
keen on. But anyway, it was, it was very great fun seeing it and having a go on the machine. But anyway, they only sell one at a time. One may go to Poland or Germany or France or wherever. So that means, do they hire a lorry to do that on their own? No, of course not. They put it in with other goods. And one story was, I think it was the French customs, a load of, and it probably had about 10, 20 other goods on, on board, got sent back because somebody hadn't put the brackets around a number. Not him, not Austin Jarrett from the Allen Lawnmower Company. Some other company, he doesn't know what it was even, didn't have it. So the lawnmower got sent back to Stafford where they make them. And there's nothing he can do about that, literally nothing. He can't go around every other person's paperwork checking it's all right. And uh, his, his, um, one of his lawnmowers was held up in, or several of them, held up in Poland by the customs because of the kite mark that they've been using. This British safety kite mark is no longer recognised in the same way. So the customs were just saying, we don't recognise this anymore. Now, who knows whether they got it right or wrong? And I think that's the other thing, that if anybody thinks this is the European Union, big European Union in Brussels being awkward, it's not. It's individual customs doing their jobs and mm. doing it in very different ways. I mean, maybe in Spain it'd be fine. In Poland it wasn't. And, you know, because there's new regulations for them as well. And I guess, I don't know, I'd have to prove this. But, you know, if you're importing if, from America to Poland, obviously America's outside the European Union, has different rules, different standards. But they're used to it. They've been doing that for, for years. Now, although this lawnmower company has been exporting to Poland for, I think he said, 20 years, the rules are now different and it's getting used to those different rules. Not only the company getting used to them, but the individual customs and individual customs posts getting used to them as well. I mean, business adapts, doesn't it? Otherwise, it, it, it goes out of business. Um, the, the Scots whiskey industry, you would have thought, which involves... It involves a lot of goods on lorries. It involves a lot of exports to the EU. Um, there was some talk, I think, in the, it might have been in Forbes or the Financial Times last week that Brexit was costing the Scots uh, whisky industry £5 million a week. What, what did you discover from your, um, your delve into the whisky industry? That's interesting, that figure, because I found it very difficult to get anybody to put a figure on it. We went to Chivers Brothers, which is owned by Pono Ricard, so a huge drinks giant. And they were playing it down, really. They were playing it down in, in the sense that they weren't, weren't shouting about it, weren't screaming about it. And again, another big company saying, we're coping with Brexit. Brexit's sort of over, sort of over. But dig down a bit deeper. And they changed the whole way they do business. They used to take things across. And maybe it was a good way to change business anyway. But they used to um, drive, I'm not sure where to exactly, but drive to the continent within their lorries. Now they put them on containers, ship them to the countries because it's easier to get the containers in than it is to get the lorry drivers checked. Now that actually weirdly stood them in good stead during COVID because they didn't have the lorry drivers being checked for COVID at the borders. They could just take the containers. So you can argue it pushed them into a business model that was more successful. Mm. But they again spent loads of time working that out and through their logistics departments into that. And they've changed the whole way they've done business because of Brexit. But they're saying they're fine. But a smaller company, I don't know how many people they employ there, but I mean, even in the one plant, there were hundreds of people. But the Glasgow Distillery Company, a newish company, employs just 21 people. And they were having, again, real headaches, not threatening their, their business, not threatening them, not threatening that they'd go out of business, not putting them out of business at all. But 
their online sales to Germany have ceased because they were finding they you know they're sending a packet of miniatures which cost I don't know 12 quid 20 quid something like that across to a customer who fancies having their samples of their their whiskies they were getting twice that on I think it was a hundred pounds I off the top of my head but on wow. duty and I know that's true because I tried to send a present to a relative in Germany and they sent it back because they wouldn't pay the postage which was like you know sort of 50 quid or something on a present that was worth half that so you know again it's teething troubles but very burdensome so they've stopped their entire again it's changed the way they do business they've stopped their entire online sales business to Europe now they're going to the distributors and they're telling individual customers who inquire you can get it from this supermarket or that supermarket and they hope they'll keep the business up they're not going to say you know, we can't sell to Germany anymore, but it's changing the way they're doing business. And obviously, you know, so many of us work on and uh, buy stuff online. It's easier to do that in many ways than find a supermarket maybe in a completely different part of the country that is stocking these goods. It is a, a fascinating deep dive into how uh, British exporters are, are being, uh, well, how they're, they're dealing with this annoyance this red tape um and uh, how can we listen to it mark well it's on bbc sounds i think the easiest way i find i mean you can search it on bbc sounds but to be honest i find googling trading blows bbc radio 4 and you it'll come up it's also on something called seriously podcast on the bbc which you can uh, again google and find a link to and i just say my conclusion was it's these it teething troubles in many ways but if you're a parent, if you've ever been a parent, you know that teething troubles, whilst they're not fatal, are very, very painful, very awkward and cause many sleepless nights. And what? And, and I also say, I mean, nobody's pretending that Brexit was just about improving the economy. I don't think anybody seriously pretended that. It was about many things. But if you look at exporters, it's not done them any good at all. No. And, and you know, for the for the... For businesses even smaller than the ones, uh, than the smaller ones that you visited, um, there are any number of, of difficulties. Uh, trading blows, check it out. Thank you so much to Mark Mardell to read his piece in the New European. Join the New European by subscribing at the neweuropeancouk slash subscribe. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. Thank you. Model there. And finally, it's the Hall of Shame, our home for bad politicians, Brexiteers hoist by their own petard, things that annoy me generally. And one of the things that annoys me generally is Nigel Farage, who is returning to the Hall of Shame with his hot take on Afghanistan. He has written on Twitter. So the West wants to go green with electric cars. To do that, you need lithium for the batteries. Afghanistan has, bought, has got by far the largest lithium deposits in the world, and Biden has just handed them over to China. Wow, amazing. It's really a warm-hearted take on the Afghanian crisis there. It's all about lithium. Anyway, Nigel Farage is going to be absolutely furious, I think, when he finds out who wanted to take America out of Afghanistan in the first place, and who wanted to do it in May when they'd have even been less less well prepared than they were uh, when they did it this week maybe you could text his mate donald and ask who it was who wanted to pull america out of afghanistan in the first place and did that deal with the taliban i wouldn't bother trying to dm him on twitter though Nigel, because he's not there anymore uh alak igad harumph 
it's on Whittacombe Corner, the magical time of the podcast when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Whittacombe's ridiculous column in the ridiculous Daily Express. But this week, Anne has expressed a sentiment I think we can all agree with. She writes, the conflict in Afghanistan has been hellish, but Armageddon would be worse. Yes, on balance, I think Armageddon would be slightly worse. Thank you. Um, well done there. Uh, but foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Desmond Swain. He's the Conservative MP, that stands for Moral Pygmy, for the New Forest West. And he said during the Afghanistan debate that Afghanis should stand and fight the Taliban rather than queuing at the airport. He said they were queuing at the airport. And that's Desmond Swain, who a year ago said he wouldn't even go shopping if he had to wear a face mask. There he is telling people to just get over it. Uh, Desmond Swain also told GB News that we couldn't afford to let in too many Afghan refugees. He said Britain is full. There is a shortage of housing. People don't have anywhere to live and we're opening our doors to a great many more. Well, according to the most recent government figures released in November 2020, in England alone, there were 268,385 homes that had been empty for at least six months. So Britain may not be as empty as Desmond Swain's head, but it is not full. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. I hope you like our new shorter format. Thank you to my guest, Mark Wardell. Thank you to you for listening. Thanks so much to my producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are released every Friday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available where you got this podcast. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our new website and join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow the New European on Twitter, at the New European. And you can follow me on Twitter too, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. So until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 